In the physics of fire, there is a chemical phenomenon known as a stoichiometric condition, in which a fire achieves the perfect burning ratio of oxygen to fuel. In other words, there is exactly enough air available for the fire to consume all of what it is burning. Frank Borden, who now runs the Los Angeles Fire Department Museum, once said to me, in every firefighter's career, there are those fires that are extraordinary and unforgettable. This was one of those. I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we'll be hearing a conversation between Barbara Kingsolver and Richard Powers. Plus readings by Susan Orlean and Natasha Trethaway. So stick around. Welcome, dear listeners, to the 22nd episode of Ampersand. We've got a great lineup for you this time, including two best-selling novelists, a superstar nonfiction writer, and a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet. But before we get to that, a brief word from our sponsors. This episode of Ampersand is brought to you in part by the MFA in Writing Program at California College of the Arts in San Francisco. They say our two-year program has launched Molly Prentice, Adam Nemet, and Julie Lithcott-Hames. Come write with us. Learn more about CCA's den of poets, raconteurs, playwrights, and novelists at cca.edu forward slash writing MFA. November-December issue is out, and our cover profile is none other than Susan Orlean, which is very exciting. Um, I love Susan Orlean. She was a pretty big influence for me, I would say, when I was a an aspiring young essayist. I remember reading The Orchid Thief in college and thinking, what is this? <laughs> um, and I think it might have been like my first understanding of what the phrase creative nonfiction really meant. And then I immediately bought a copy of The Bullfighter Checks Her Makeup and totally devoured those essays. What I remember is they were just very smart and very funny, but they were also very deeply researched. And she had this way of working her way into these worlds and writing about these people in a way that felt honest and incisive, but also thoughtful and kind. And at the time, I was actually writing about subcultures for an alternative weekly in Madison, Wisconsin. And those essays were a huge influence on that work. And I'm pretty sure in retrospect that I was just kind of emulating her, um, probably badly. And then I got to meet her a few years later uh, when I was an MFA student. She came to teach a workshop, and I discovered that she was just as funny and brilliant and generous in person. So anyway, I was pretty thrilled to learn that we would be featuring her in the issue. 
and Kate Tuttle, who's the president of the National Book Critics Circle, uh, interviews her about her new book, The Library Book, which is out this month from Simon & Schuster. It's about a massive 1986 fire that destroyed the Los Angeles Public Library. And this fire burned for seven hours, and by the time it was extinguished, had consumed 400,000 books. So with her signature wit, compassion, and investigative research, Orlean takes on this fire, whose cause has remained a mystery. She attempts to solve the mystery while weaving in personal stories about the importance of books in her life, the history and evolution of libraries around the world, and the vital role that they play in our lives and our culture. And we have an excerpt of Susan Orlean reading from the new book. So here she is with a section from The Library Book. At first, the smoke in the fiction stacks was as pale as onion skin. Then it deepened to dove gray. Then it turned black. It wound around fiction A through L, curling in lazy ringlets. It gathered into soft puffs that bobbed and banked against the shelves like bumper cars. Suddenly, sharp fingers of flame shot through the smoke and jabbed upward. More flames erupted. The heat built. The temperature reached 451 degrees, and the books began smoldering. Their covers burst like popcorn. Pages flared and blackened and then sprang away from their bindings, a ream of sooty scraps soaring on the updraft. The fire flashed through fiction, consuming as it traveled. It reached for the cookbooks. The cookbooks roasted. The fire scrambled to the sixth tier and then to the seventh. Every book in its path bloomed with flame. At the seventh tier, the fire banged into the concrete ceiling, doubled back, and mushroomed down again to the sixth tier. It poked around, looking for more air and fuel. Pages and book jackets and microfilm and magazines crumpled and vanished. On the sixth tier, flames crowded against the walls of the stacks, then decided to move laterally. The fire burned through six-tier shelves and then nosed around until it found the catwalk that connected the northeast stacks to the northwest stacks. It erupted into the catwalk and hurried along until it reached the patent collection stored in the northwest stacks. It gripped the blocky patent gazettes. They were so thick that they resisted, but the heat gathered until at last the gazettes smoked, flared, crackled and dematerialized. Wind gusts filled the vacuum made by the fire. Hot air saturated the walls. The floor began to fracture. A spider web of hot cracks appeared. Ceiling beams spalled, sending chips of concrete shooting in every direction. The temperature reached 900 degrees, and the stacked steel shelves brightened from gray to white, as if illuminated from within. Soon, glistening and nearly molten, they glowed cherry red. Then they twisted and slumped, pitching their books into the fire. The two fire companies inside the building connected their equipment to the standpipes and headed into the stacks, but their biggest hoses, swollen stiff with water, couldn't make the sharp turns in the tight stairways. Dean Cathy, one of the captains on duty, remembered tugging hoses that wouldn't budge. 
the firefighters traded them for smaller, more nimble hoses. The thinner stream of water from the small hoses sizzled and evaporated in the flames. In the stacks with their open grid of shelving, the fire rose up while the water flooded down. Firefighters tossed salvage covers on the shelves, hoping to protect the books from the fury of fire and water. The battalion chief, Donald Cate, alerted City Hall and the head of the fire department, Donald Manning, that an emergency was unfolding at the library. EC-9 and EC-10 were overwhelmed. Engine companies around the city were mustered. By 11.30 a.m., an additional eight command officers and 22 fire companies in full firefighting turnouts and breathing apparatus assembled at Fifth and Flower, an ambulance parked on Hope Street. When the fire proved too much even for this larger team, Kate called for more help. Within an hour, the force grew to include 60 firefighter companies, nine ambulances, three helicopters, two emergency air units, 350 firefighters, and one arson unit. In total, more than half the fire department resources in the entire city of Los Angeles. Donald Manning arrived at the library. He worried that the department would be caught short if another major fire occurred in the city, so he asked the county fire department to field calls for the city while the library was burning. By this time, the fire in the library was spreading fluidly, like spilled ink. The fire department's spokesperson, Tony D. Domenico, watched from the sidewalk on Fifth Street. Talking to one reporter, he sounded worried. Once that first stack got going, it was goodbye, Charlie. So I have a little story. At the end of the summer, I flew down to Virginia and had what can be accurately described as a grand literary adventure that made a really meaningful impression on me. Actually, I flew to Charlotte, North Carolina, then hopped on a second plane to Tri-Cities Airport in Tennessee and rented a car and drove up to Meadowview, Virginia. But all of that traveling was totally worth it because who was waiting for me at the end? None other than best-selling novelists Barbara Kingsolver and Richard Powers. But let me back up. This journey actually began way back in April when I was recovering from back surgery. Needless to say, I'm fine, and the recovery time gave me a rare opportunity to catch up on some of the books that were stacked up by my bedside, including the latest novel by Richard Powers, The Overstory. It's this fascinating, beautiful book in which Powers introduces eight seemingly disparate narratives, all of them circling the theme of trees. Now, I'll be honest, sometimes I get a little impatient when an author introduces too many storylines in succession. It can, I think, in the hands of the wrong writer at least, start to feel like a story collection rather than a novel. But I tell you, Richard Powers has truly earned the adjective bestowed on him when he won the MacArthur Genius Fellowship back in 1989. Because as I read the overstory, each time I finished one of these rather long chapters, I thought, no, I don't want to move on. I want to stay with this character. 
But then, within a page of the next chapter, I was completely and utterly enthralled with the new character. And then halfway through the book, he starts weaving together these narratives and these characters, and it's really just a breathtaking book about, at its essence, trees. So I finish the novel, my back is starting to feel a little better, and the very next thing I read is a front-page review of the overstory in the New York Times book review written by Barbara Kingsolver. And she is just as enthralled with this book as I was. And then I notice in her bio that, hey, Barbara Kingsolver has a new novel coming out this month. So Unsheltered is the tale of two families who live in different centuries in Vineland, New Jersey, a real town built as a utopian community in the 1860s. Kingsolver blends historical and fictional characters to frame twin narratives of people coping with a paradigm shift. The story of Willa Knox and her family, who inherit a ramshackle house in disrepair right around the time of the election of a certain loudmouthed bigot, is juxtaposed with the narrative 150 years earlier of Thatcher Greenwood, a science teacher who comes under attack for furthering the controversial theories of Charles Darwin. So it's an amazing novel that is built, like the overstory, with this super interesting architecture, and it showcases Kingsolver's brilliant attention to character and voice and a larger view of the world, all in service of narrative. Kingsolver is, of course, the author of nine best-selling works of fiction, including the novels Flight Behavior, The Lacuna, The Poisonwood Bible, and Animal Dreams, as well as books of poetry, essays, and creative nonfiction. And Powers has written 12 novels, including The Echo Maker and The Time of Our Singing and Orfeo and Gain. They are both truly masters of the art form. So I thought, I wonder if these two have ever met. And as it turns out, they hadn't. So I contacted them and they both agreed to meet and talk and to let me record it. Richard lives in the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, a few hours south of where Barbara lives in Virginia. So I flew down there, not knowing quite what to expect, and spent an afternoon with the two of them. We had lunch on the terrace behind her farmhouse in the woods, and I just invited them to talk about really anything they wanted to talk about. And boy, did they talk uh, for hours, uh, surrounded by trees, bathed in the sounds of the forest, with little hummingbirds darting here and there overhead. And they talked so deeply and intelligently about the craft of fiction and the architecture of novels that I sat sort of stunned in silence, just happy to be in the presence of two such smart, passionate people who are so invested in literature. We have a big chunk of that conversation in the new issue, and we're going to listen to a clip from it now. Uh, you can hear the crickets in the background, and if you listen closely, you can actually hear one of those hummingbirds. So here is Barbara Kingsolver and Richard Powers. When you composed the book, did you use each of the time frames to refresh yourself from the other one, or did you, I mean, you had to do a fair amount of top-down planning in order for all the joints to work out. Yeah. But then were you able to work consecutively, or were you doing a lot of discursive back and forth? Um, I always do a lot of jumping around. Yeah. I do a lot of architecture. I want to talk, I want to, talk mm. to you about your process, because mm. that's really interesting to me. Um, I do an enormous amount of planning and yeah. plotting. Yeah. I even kind of write things on legal pads, sort of narrative arc right. stuff, the architecture right. of the story. And then I, well, then I'll just write almost like a, like a movie treatment, sort of a, uh. a few sentences about what happens in each chapter. Right. And then I'll break each of those out into a file on right. the computer. And then that way, 
if I start seeing a scene that's happening at the end, I yeah. could just go to that chapter and write whatever I want oh, to write. Uh, I'm almost picturing like an 18th century proto-novel, chapter 18, in which... In which, exactly, yeah, that, I hear that voice, or A.A. A. Milne, in which Pooh and Piglet discover... Yeah, um, very much like that. And it's also much less daunting during the first draft yeah. to open up, you know, the chapter 16 file, and there's yeah. something, yeah. even if it's all going to change by now, but... Usually it doesn't all change. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so then when I have a, pretty much of it plotted out and, and kind of outlined, then I'll try to do a contiguous first draft. But I still do a lot of jumping around. That's so interesting. So how about you? How do you, how do you work? How do you start? You know, what you just said explains a little bit of something that I just marvel at and fills me with horrific envy and you know unhealthy at <laughs> 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 how well you do this I mean um, very few people writing now are as absolutely viscerally persuasive at the level of the scene and the, and the character and in you know the transactional vignettes while still in the service of grand architecture and, and, a, and a thematic uh, preoccupation that's just manifest itself in all kinds of ingenious ways across the you know the, the 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 journey, and I just think, how does she do that? Where it does not feel constructed, and yet, when you step back and you realize where you've been, the to to quote Horace, the instruction and the delight, uh, or the top down and the bottom up just mesh. I mean, it must be. You're not hitting that on a first draft, presumably. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. It, I mean, but, well, no, I don't mean to say you're right. Thank you very much for the compliment. But um, you're right. That is that is the, the sort of the manifold challenge of the process is to start with that architecture and then dress it you know then yeah. put you you know you put on the sheetrock and then you put on the paint and then you yeah. put on the furniture and i mean by the end of it hopefully none of the none of the eye beams is is you know but it's, it's visible more than that. they're all I'm, there I, absolutely but you know you're doing there, there are things that pop up you know on page 370 of the 19th century frame that are a kind of retrospective correspondence to things that are happening on page 20 of the, of the 21st century frame. And, you know, she sold her soul to the devil to get <laughs> I'm going to say bless you for having the memory to notice. Right. I often feel like I'm throwing away, you know, sort of nine-tenths of the work. But, <laughs> but because, yeah, you don't know. I mean, the English teachers who teach this book year after year, they'll notice. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, you know, but I just love those letters I get from people who say, I read it four times yeah. and I'm starting my fifth because, yeah. you know, you put so much more into mm. a book than any one person is going to get out of it. That's but right. that's okay because that's the form and it needs to be many things to many that's right. people. And anyway, I'm not, you know, not trying to please any, I'm not trying to please anybody really, mm. am I? Um, I'm trying to say this thing right. But that, I think... What you're referring to, sort of the, the cross-referential nature of it, is the beauty of a vision. I feel like once I've gotten a draft nailed down, yeah. then I can breathe, right? Because then, yeah. I mean, then I can accept the advance. Right. Now I know for sure I can do this thing, but the real art comes from revision. Yeah. Because you can take that ending and pull it back right. through the whole thing. And you, with the minute you know for sure where you're going to end up, 
yeah. then you can start angling, right. you know, kind of holding up mirrors in right. different scenes that kind of right. lead yeah. the re reader in the right yeah. direction without giving them away too much. Two things on that. There's a great villanelle by Theodore Rethke, mm -hmm. uh, I Wake to Sleep and Take mm -hmm. My Week. And, mm -hmm. and the refrain line, line is, I learn by going where I have to go. Exactly. But of course that means two completely inimical things. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I and well it is fascinating that every writer has a different process, yeah. but many I know say, Well, I just start writing and I don't have any idea where right. I'm gonna end up and I just you know, it's just like a wander through the woods. And I think if I did that yeah. Who would be trash? Nobody would just wander around and right. nobody would, right. people would just turn around and go home. It well, would be too wandery. Here's the thing. I mean, I think you could get away with that <laughs> if your primary concern were simply to manifest some local aspect of consciousness. You're or, right. You know, some private That's thing. Some, true. You know, some, some psychological, you know, small scale thing. But you're not doing that. I mean, you're... You are working on at least three levels at once. I mean, you've got the psychological going, you have the social and the political going, and you have this larger. I mean, I, I think of it as the three kinds of love: you mm -hmm. know, uh, eros, uh, philia, and agape. Yeah. And I think King Salver is the one who gets all three plates of the, in, in the air every time. Well, thank with, you. With no sacrifice, and that's, you're, you're really making me blush. <laughs> okay. Right. Let the record show. <laughs>authors featured in page one this issue is the poet Natasha Trethaway, who was a two-term U.S. Poet Laureate from 2012 to 2014, and is the author of six books, one of which, Native Guard, won the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. She was also on the cover of our magazine back in 2012 on the release of her collection Thrall. Her latest book, Monument, Poems New and Selected, will be published in November by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And we have a recording of her reading her work, so here is Natasha Trethaway with a reading of two poems, originally from Native Guard and included in her new book, Monument. Theories of Time and Space You can get there from here, though there's no going home. Everywhere you go will be somewhere you've never been. Try this. Head south on Mississippi 49, one by one, mile markers ticking off, another minute of your life. Follow this to its natural conclusion, dead end at the coast, the pier at Gulfport where riggings of shrimp boats are loose stitches in a sky threatening rain. Cross over the man-made beach, 26 miles of sand dumped on the mangrove swamp, buried terrain of the past. Bring only what you must carry, tome of memory, its random blank pages. On the dock where you board the boat for Ship Island, someone will take your picture, the photograph, who you were, will be waiting when you return.
at dusk. At first, I think she is calling a child. My neighbor leaning through her doorway at dusk, street lamps just starting to hum the backdrop of evening. Then I hear the high-pitched wheedling we send out to animals who know only sound, not the meanings of our words, hear, hear, nor how they sometimes fall short. In another yard, Beyond my neighbor's sight, the cat lifts her ears, turns first toward the voice, then back to the constellation of fireflies flickering near her head. It's as if she can't decide whether to leap over the low hedge, the neat row of flowers, and bound onto the porch into the steady circle of light, or stay where she is, luminous possibility, all that would keep her away from home flitting before her. I listen as my neighbor's voice trails off. She's given up calling for now, left me to imagine her inside the house, waiting, perhaps in a chair in front of the TV or walking around doing small tasks. Left me to wonder that I too might lift my voice, sure of someone out there. Send it over the lines stitching here to there. Certain the sounds I make are enough to call someone home. And that's it for this episode. We'll be back in two months when it will be December, and we will be staring in the face of 2019. That is crazy. It is crazy. Where did this year go? I think if you've been paying attention to the news, uh, as we have, it is safe to say that it went up in a blaze of a trash fire. Mm. Or was it a garbage fire? Dumpster fire. Oh, even better. Yeah. I th- I, you know what I think... I think charting the last three years, I think 2016 was the trash fire. Mm-hmm. Um, 2017 was the garbage fire. Mm-hmm. And 2018 was... The dumpster fire. Right, right. You put all the trash and all the garbage in the dumpster. And it just goes up in a big dumpster fire. Spontaneously combusts. <laughs> big ball of flame. Yeah. I think dumpster fire is one of the better phrases that the internet has given us. Mm, mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Thanks, Internet. Thank you, Internet. Um, So, uh, frankly, I'm looking forward to 2019. (laughs) Here's hoping. Yeah. So, tune in next time. To Ampersand. The Poets and Writers Podcast. ¶¶